all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens, where we discuss issues involving your children as they're growing up. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC and Program Director of the MedPeds Residency Program. Just about every kid has diarrhea, constipation, or reflux growing up. While it can be extremely frustrating for you and them to deal with, most of the time it's self-limiting. But what about those times that don't improve on their own? When do you need to worry about it, and what are the treatment options? We'll be discussing some common pediatric GI issues today, and would love to hear your questions this morning. You can share your comments and questions by calling 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464, or send us an email to kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens from MPB Think Radio. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The director of Homeland Security is in Louisiana today, where thousands have been devastated by record flooding. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports some communities are cleaning up while others are still inundated. Outside Ponchatoula, Wayne Norwood is trying to salvage what he can from the Louisiana Treasures Museum, a roadside collection of antiques he's compiled over 50 years. It's one of those situations where you, you don't know what to do. It's bad. But see, the thing about it, you've got thousands, thousands of people in the same situation I'm in. An estimated 40,000 homes were damaged, along with schools and businesses in a widespread region of South Louisiana. Roads and bridges are still underwater in parts of the state. Debbie Elliott, NPR News, Baton Rouge. Brazilian authorities reportedly are accusing four U.S. swimmers of lying when they said they were robbed in Rio. As NPR's Lulu Garcia-Navarro reports, local media are quoting police saying the gold medalist swimmer Ryan Lochte and three of his teammates fabricated their stories and that the incident was tied to an altercation at a gas station. According to the Brazilian press, Lochte and his friends stopped at a gas station on the way back from a late-night party. They were apparently drunk and became aggressive when they were told they had to use the bathroom outside of the shop. They damaged some property and refused to pay for it. A security guard was called, according to press reports, and he pulled a gun on the group to force them to pay up for damages. Lochte has claimed he was robbed at gunpoint, but his story has changed. At first, it was by men dressed as police. Then he acknowledged the incident took place at a gas station, but insisted he was the victim of a crime. The three other swimmers are still in Brazil. Two of them were taken off the plane yesterday night and had their passports held pending the investigation. Lulu Garcia Navarro, NPR News, Rio de Janeiro. In the women's 4x100-meter relays, the U.S. team is getting another shot at qualifying. The team will rerun the race tonight. Earlier today, 
Allison Felix and English Gardner botched a handover. The team filed a protest claiming outside interference had affected the handover. Today at the Olympics, the game's transcendent star is back on the track. NPR's Tom Goldman says Usain Bolt is trying to win his second gold medal to be won in Rio. In the last two Summer Olympics, Usain Bolt won both the 100 and 200 meters. In Rio, he's halfway there, hoping to add a 200 gold tonight to the 100 gold he won last weekend. His job will be a little easier because rival Justin Gatlin of the U.S. failed to qualify for the finals. But there's still formidable competition in Canadian Andre de Grasse and American LaShawn Merritt. That's NPR's Tom Goldman reporting. At last check on Wall Street, the Dow was down 11 points at 18,562. NASDAQ was up 9 points at 5237. And the S&P 500 was up a fraction at 2183. This is NPR News. The South Korean Army says it has conducted its largest ever artillery drill near the border with North Korea. NPR's Elise Hugh reports comes on a grim anniversary in the DMZ. This time last year, two South Korean soldiers were severely injured when a landmine exploded near them at the border with North Korea. After marathon talks, North Korea expressed regret for the incident. As part of the Thursday drill, 300 artillery systems along the border began firing at the same time. South Korea says the North hasn't shown signs of activity in response. The drill does come just a day after North Korea announced it is restarting plutonium production. That's part of its international rules-breaking nuclear program. Tensions between the North and South tend to run high this time of year. Annual war games featuring the 28,000 American troops based in South Korea and the South Korean military will start this week. Elise Hugh, NPR News, Seoul. The Turkish government is cracking down on companies that have ties to a U.S.-based Muslim cleric whom the government accuses of orchestrating a recently failed attempt to oust President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Today, police carried out raids in 18 cities. The state-run Anadolu agency says the government had ordered the detention of more than 180 businessmen. Uber says it plans to test out vehicles with autonomous technology over the next several weeks in Pittsburgh, where the ride-hailing service has a self-driving research lab. Uber says its Ford Fusions will have human backup drivers. Separately, Volvo plans to provide SUVs to Uber for autonomous vehicle research in a $300 million deal both companies announced today. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Fifth Generation Incorporated, maker of Tito's Handmade Vodka, still independently owned by Tito Beverage, distilled and bottled in Austin, Texas, American-made and gluten-free. Recipes and more at titosvodka.com. Catch up on past episodes and hear any of the MPB programs you've missed on the MPB Public Radio app. Available on iTunes and Google Play. Listen live to MPB Think Radio and MPB Music Radio. Search MPB Public Radio. This is Mississippi Public Broadcasting. I'm Terry Gross. Listen to Fresh Air weekdays at 3 on MPB Think Radio. You're listening to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. This is 
This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC and Program Director of the MedPeds Residency Program. Reflux, diarrhea, constipation, if your child is dealing with any of these issues, then you know just how difficult it can be. What's the best way to treat chronic constipation? What is reflux in an infant? When is it not normal? We'll be answering all these questions and more and any that you might have as we talk about some of the most common pediatric GI issues. That's right. We're talking about poop and vomit this morning. That's two of the things that we as pediatricians see a lot of. We would love for you to join in on the discussion this morning. If you're dealing with these difficult issues on Southern Remedy Kids and Teens, you can reach us by calling 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email us at kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. Well, good morning to everybody. I hope Everybody is getting some sleep. I am not, because the Olympics are keeping me up way too late, and uh, it's way past Dr. Jimmy's bedtime, uh, but I'm seeing some good stuff. i tell you what, that volleyball game between Kerry Walsh and April Ross and the Brazilian team the other night, ah, oh, man. And it's not something you can just watch and not get emotionally involved in. You <laughs> I know heard what I'm talking that was about, a, Jay? I, I didn't see that one, actually, but I heard it was an all-timer. Oh, yeah. And I was like, yeah. volleyball? Beach well, I don't volleyball? know if it was all time. I'm not that uh, scripted on beach volleyball all timeness. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was pretty good, though. I've been watching them all Olympics, and uh, it was, uh, that was pretty spectacular. I, track and field is my game. So uh, yeah, I was, I've, I've been staying up watching those. I was those watching heats. some of that last night. Yeah. And yeah. a lot of underdogs, too. Uh, got a good sweep last night by the women's team on the 100, and, uh, 100 meter hurdles. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, some good running, really good running. Mo Farah, that guy's incredible. Yeah. Falling down in the race and still winning. <laughs> yeah, I saw uh, uh, Tori Bowie. Uh, oh, who's yeah, a Mississippi. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Rankin County girl. She uh, finished uh, third in her race Yeah, against two of the very best in the world Yeah, uh, and did a, did a great job. And, of course, Gatlin kind of blew it. Yeah. Was, uh, now yeah. everybody's – that's all the controversy now. <laughs> Uh, you know, he started cadillac a little bit too early he, and wound up losing. He wasn't uh, too popular going into the games by a lot of people. He got sort of a <laughs> that first uh, uh, qualifying round in the 100. He got booed a pretty good bit. So, uh, I, you know, regardless of what you say about uh, about Bolt, Usain Bolt, Bolt, the guy's the guy's got a lot of heart. And if you look at how he conducts himself after the races, after the showmanship is over, yeah. And, uh, you know, he respects medal ceremonies. He stops doing what he's doing, even interviews and warming up. Uh, won't allow those to go on if there's somebody else being honored. Uh, congratulates, you know, new people on the scene. I mean, he does a lot for the sport. Yeah, I've heard usually uh, the, the color commentator for the games always mentions, uh, you know, if, if, if Bolt has said something nice about any of the runners, that's usually – the highest praise they can have, even sure. more so than you know what they finished in the European Championships or the yeah. North American or you know the uh, the World Championships in the off the off Olympic years. It's what did you know? Usain Bolt said that this this could be the guy that takes right. the torch from him whenever he decides that he wants to leave. Right. Yeah, I guess it would be like if you were a boxer. Uh you know, up and coming, and Muhammad Ali would have said, "Oh, you need to watch for him." That yeah. would have uh, gone like wildfire. So, yeah. So, I, it's a lot of lot of stuff to see. Still, a lot of Olympics to go on, but you know, uh, it's at least it's not on, on a, in a similar time zone uh, in this hemisphere. So, it's uh, you know, if I, if it wasn't, I wouldn't get any sleep. I guess I'd be even needing even more caffeine than I am. 
So we're talking about GI issues this morning. You know, GI issues are something that's incredibly common in kids, and we deal with it all the time. We deal with it with anticipatory issues when we talk to new parents uh, about what to expect. You know, there's every baby's going to reflux. Uh, every baby at some point or child at some point is probably going to have diarrhea. Every once in a while, you'll find somebody that didn't have it. Uh, constipation is extremely common. All three of these things we see on a day in and day out basis in a pediatric clinic. And most of the time they're self-limiting. They're a little bit difficult to deal with when you're having it. Uh, but most of them will get better with a little bit of time. And most of the time you don't have to do too much. But there are situations when it's a little bit more serious or that there are other conditions that are causing it. Uh, we're going to be, t- be talking about that today. So if you're dealing with that right now, constipation, diarrhea, reflux in your child or in your family, give us a call. We'd love to hear what the problem is, and hopefully we can help you solve it or deal with it a little bit better. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring that's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or if you'd like to give us uh, send us an email, you can send that to kids and teens at mpbonline.org. So what about reflux? So reflux, for those of you who don't know, is when you basically have gastric contents, things that are in the stomach that's normally there, that uh, comes back up into the esophagus. And usually, you know, everybody can have reflux. In fact, just about everybody on the planet has had reflux at least once in their life. Uh, most of the time, it is a self-limiting condition. When you talk about infants and kids, you know, every baby refluxes. Uh, if you want proof of that, look and see these little, you know, burp rags that people have on their shoulders. Uh, you know, you you got to have something up there because when you burp that baby... You know, at least some of the time, some stuff's going to come back up. And babies reflux for a reason. Just like babies, when they're born, they're not uh, able to walk or even crawl or even lift up their head appropriately because their musculature just hasn't developed yet, and that's a normal process. Uh, the the tube that connects the um, mouth or the posterior oropharynx to the um, to the stomach is called the esophagus, and that's basically a tube that is mainly has uh, nervous tissue in there and muscle. And its primary job is to move food in one direction toward the stomach. Now, if you have problems with it, it can go the opposite direction. The problem in younger infants is that that lower portion of that tube is really lax, just like it's not developed uh, in, in the same way that their musculature is not developed for them to walk or to crawl uh, yet. And over time, that develops to the point where they can Uh, where it closes off when the stomach's doing what it normally should do, which is increase acid production to break down foods and to mechanically break those foods down so that they can be moved into the small and large intestine. So off infants, you know, do reflux, uh, you know, during the exam at two weeks when we see them and then uh, following. uh, It's it's common, uh, particularly after we've examined their abdomen, uh, their their tummy, uh, you know, we sort of press on there, feeling for any abnormal masses. 
uh, with him laying down that they reflux on the table. Uh, that's sort of their gift back to Dr. Jimmy uh, for pushing too hard. Uh, so it is, it is a normal process. Now, it can be incredibly frustrating or even scary to some parents if you haven't seen this before. Uh, routine things that we, we get questions asked about all the time, and uh, I had a couple of emails about this, is, um, you know, what about if they reflux and it comes out their nose? I mean, the, the coming out is something about when that when the stomach contents come back out the nose that freaks people out. With a normal infant, an infant that doesn't have any neurologic problems, that is, you know, that, that doesn't have anything else that we can see that's wrong with him, that's okay. Now, they may cough a little bit. Actually, a lot of infants will just swallow it back down, and they don't have too many problems at all with it. Uh, if you or I did that, we would cough and sputter, you know, as adults, but infants te- tend to deal with it a little bit better. So there's no increased risk for that, and it can happen from time to time. It doesn't mean necessarily that there's anything wrong with him. Uh, and if your child does have a reflux problem a little bit more than the next child, uh, you know, that may happen from time to time. But all, all infants do that, at least to some extent. Now, some do it more than others. Uh, there is some limited evidence that if you have somebody else in the family, if mom or dad has problems with reflux or gastritis, then, you know, there's a good chance that some of the, at least some of their kids might have that as well. It usually peaks out about four to six months, though. So uh, reflux, uh, significant enough to bring those stomach contents back up in an infant uh, you know, usually by six months of age, it's starting to get better. And by one year of age, about 95% of refluxers will be better by that point. And that makes sense if you think about it. You know, solid foods stay down better than liquid foods. And because we give, we don't give solid foods to an infant uh, before they have adequate head control uh, and are able to swallow, again, that, that has to do with the neuromusculature uh, developmental process in the mouth and in the swallowing mechanism. We don't, usually don't give that both before four to six months. Um, and uh, once you start to introduce solid foods uh, when they can tolerate it, those tend to stay down a little bit more. Think about it as an adult. If you drink a lot of liquids, particularly let's say that they're carbonated liquids, and then you belch a little bit, you're more likely to get a little bit uh, more of that back up. Uh, same kind of process in an infant. Now, there are suggestive symptoms because infants don't tell us, hey, I'm having problems with reflux. Uh, it's, it's causing some irritation. A lot of what we diagnose gastroesophageal reflux in infants has to do with what we observe and what's observed by uh, caregivers, by parents and grandparents. So there are some suggestive symptoms of a process that may not be, you know, just the normal reflux that infants have. One is irritability. So if you notice after eating that your infant is having a little bit more irritability with that, it could be colic, and colic has been, you know, associated associated with uh, increased reflux, and we don't know if that's a chicken or the egg thing, if the colic is causing the increased reflux or the other way around. Feeding refusal, and this is mainly with older uh, infants or toddlers, if they're refusing to eat, that's a problem, uh, and it may be because they're just having that pain. Usually with younger kids, we don't see it quite as much because that's that feeding impulse is so strong, and they don't have uh, the mechanisms yet to, to refuse the feeds. Uh, failure to thrive is something else, and that's a that's a medical term that really means that an infant is not growing and developing uh, in a way that's appropriate. So one of the reasons why we as pediatricians and as primary care uh, providers, uh, uh, when we 
see a child for their normal checkups, we look at their weight and look at their height, and we plot them out to see if they're growing appropriately. And if they're having a, a big problem with reflux, what usually happens is you'll see the weight to fall, you know weight sort of falls off the curve first. So they're not uh, the the growth velocity is not there, the weight velocity is not there. Uh, so that's something that we look at too. And you know there are some big red flags if they uh, if they reflux and there's blood there, there may be a problem. Uh, that's a big one. That's usually an easy one for parents because if they see blood in that, they're, they're going to bring them in pretty quick. And then in older children, if they have problems with asthma or wheezing or cough, especially at night, that might clue you in that you might have a reflux problem. We're talking about reflux and soon to be talking about diarrhea and constipation this morning. But if you've got a question or comment for us about your child, maybe they're having these problems or others, give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can email us at kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. We'll be right back after this break. for MPB comes from the Mississippi Book Festival featuring over 150 authors, 30 panel discussions, book signings, music, food trucks, and a children's corner celebrating Curious George. Saturday, August 20th at the State Capitol. Details at msbookfestival.com. Today is Thursday, but you know what tomorrow is. It's Friday, and that means high school football. Hello, everyone. I'm Russ Robinson. Join me, Jay White, Jake Wimberly, George Broadstreet, and the whole gang as we bring you all the scores and the stories that make up high school football across the state of Mississippi. So join us tomorrow night at 10, right here on MPB Think Radio. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. You're listening to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Welcome back to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. I'm Dr. Jimmy, and we're talking about poop and vomit this morning. That's right. We're talking about constipation, diarrhea, and reflux. Some of the most common things we see in kids, but uh, can be a really hard thing to deal with, uh, particularly as a parent. There's not much you can do when they're having those, and you just want it to stop. 
Uh, we've been talking about reflux and some of the more common presentations of reflux, maybe some of the warning signs. If you have any kind of questions about reflux, maybe you have a newborn and you think that they're spitting up a little bit too much, maybe have some concerns about that, we would love to hear your questions or comments this morning. You can reach us by calling one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can email us at kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. So if they do have reflux out of the ordinary, particularly for infants and for older children, you know, and if it's been going on for a long time, and by long time I don't mean like a week, but uh, usually that's, that's we're talking about months with reflux, then, uh, you know, you want to know, well, how do you diagnose that out of the normal, um, out of the normal pattern of reflux in, in younger kids? So if they're older kids, sometimes we will uh, have a, what we do is uh, have sort of a diagnostic slash treatment way that we approach it. So there are some conditions that by treating it, if the symptoms go away, then that's really your diagnosis as long as there are no red flags. And reflux is one of those things that we sometimes do that for. Uh, a lot of what we ask in the history uh, is for triggers, particularly with older children. So there may be some foods that they're eating. Uh, fast food can increase acid production. Uh, there are some spicy foods that can do that as well. Uh, so if there are some foods that are identified that we can change, that would be a, a, you know, at least try to minimize those symptoms. But if that doesn't work, sometimes we'll go ahead and start a, a medication. And there's two big classes of medications that we typically use. One's, uh, one of the older ones is called a H2 blocker. Uh, some of the names of these are Zantac, Pepsid, Axid, uh, Tagamin is a very old one. But most of the time we'll use Zantac in kids. Uh, or the proton pump inhibitors, and those are uh, some of the ones uh, like uh, Prevacid, Prilosec, or some of the, the, tra- the uh, trade names of those. Both of these medications work by decreasing acid levels in the stomach. The H2 blockers, like Zantac, uh, they work pretty good on decreasing uh, the acid production as far as decreasing the symptoms in kids, uh, they're, they're okay, but the proton pump inhibitors are really a lot more effective in doing that. So if we have a, a child, particularly an older child, that's been having these problems for a while, uh, your, your physician may uh, recommend a trial of that. Usually we uh, treat them for about two weeks uh, to see if the symptoms resolve and then taper them off about after that. If the symptoms go away, then it probably was reflux. You can still uh, try to modify the diet during that time and uh, hopefully to get them off of it after about two weeks. There are some other tests that look at the, the pH, the a measure of acidity in the lower part of the esophagus. So for older kids, sometimes, particularly if you see a gastroenterologist, a pediatric gastroenterologist, they may recommend a pH probe. So this is a uh, a tube, a thin wire that goes down through a tube that goes down to the lower portion of the esophagus that measures the pH, the measure of, of acidity in the lower portion of the esophagus. Uh, there are kinds, all kinds of different fancy tests, too, that you can, you can get. Uh, there's a multi-channel intraluminal impedance monitoring device. I know that's a big, long word. 
but uh, basically it doesn't tell you uh, a whole lot except in special situations. And then uh, EGD or endoscopy, that's where you stick a lighted tube down all the way into the stomach or maybe even the first part of the intestines uh, to look directly at the surface lining of the stomach to see if it's red, if it looks like there may have been chronic acid production there if there's any suspicious portions of the stomach. And sometimes they'll take biopsies as well with that. And and kids, most of the time, they tolerate that pretty well. It's an invasive procedure. They have to be sedated. Uh, You know, about 5% of them will have complications after, you know, sedation. So, you know, if you don't have to do that, that's, that's sort of the last thing that you would do to try to figure it out if they're not having any complications. And, you know, a lot of people would say, well, with reflux, is there really any any reason to treat that? Well, you know, pain is a big, big complication that you can have. Um, um, of course, that acid production hurts. If you have a baby that's screaming their head off all the time, then, yeah, it may be worth it to go ahead and treat with something like Zantac or with uh, Prevacid or Prilosec type medications. If they have asthma, asthma uh, has been associated with increased uh, reflux. And again, it's not we're not quite sure if that's just a, a chicken or the egg thing with, with either one, but we do know they occur uh, side by side sometimes. And if you do have a child that has developmental delay uh, or neurologic problems, recurrent pneumonias can be a problem with reflux, and, and it's mainly a, an irritant and not an, a true infection. And then nighttime cough. So if a child presents with a nighttime cough, one of the things we may think about is uh, reflux in that instance. So you know, if you, if you have to look at it, a child that presents with this, if it's not out of the ordinary, if it's an infant and they're gaining weight appropriately, uh, you know, most of the time I'll counsel people to sort of wait that out uh, as best you can, reassure them that the child is getting enough calories in because they're gaining weight, uh, maybe try older in older individuals some in a toddler or young child a diet modification. There are some things you can do to thicken up the formula in younger kids, so your physician may have recommended, you may have heard some other uh you know, some of your friends, uh, pediatricians recommended maybe thickening up the formula with rice cereal. Uh, so you can do that. They do make some fancy formulas that once they hit that acid in the stomach, they change from a liquid consistency to a thickened consistency of about honey. So Infamil AR is one of those. And again, you're just trying to help uh, solidify that in the stomach. And doing some, you know, non-fancy things after feeding, like uh, keeping the, ch- the baby upright to help gravity sort of move things along. Don't lay them down after feeding um, uh, and uh, trying to, you know, just do some of those maneuvers first. There are some other agents that have been used uh, in severe reflux. They don't work too well and they have lots of side effects. So there's an antibiotic called erythromycin that's been used. There's uh, some other things like Reglan. Uh, that really they're not really worth uh, you know starting in most kids just because of the of the potential side effects they can interfere with other medications. There's some liver considerations with some of them, and some of them uh, work on to uh, on the uh, brain in different ways too. Uh, for really severe kids, surgery is an option. And again, some of these kids are the ones that have uh, that have neurologic. Uh, difficulties. And there's a surgery that sort of wraps up the lower portion of the esophagus called a Nissen uh, uh, surgery. But that's usually, you know, the the oddity and sort of the outlier. Uh, 
Talking about reflux this morning, uh, we're going to talk about uh, some diarrhea and constipation too and some of the ways that presents in kids. We would love to hear from you if you have any questions this morning about anything related to that or any other health problem related to your uh, that your children or your family has been dealing with. You can call us this morning at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can email us at kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. Well, let's talk about constipation. So constipation, also a common thing in kids. Up to 30% of kids would present uh, sometime during their childhood. If you look at everybody, about 30% of them will present with constipation. It uh, usually it makes up about three to five percent of pediatric visits. Uh, generally, it's in kids from the toddler age uh, through school, young school age, just as they're starting school. Uh, uh, I think I said school. I hope I didn't say stool. Uh, but we could, we, I may have done that. Sorry about that. Uh, and, you know. You clarified, though. Yeah, I did clarify that. So just as they're starting school. Um, so it's very common. We deal with it a, a quite a, a lot. And it, it can go along with potty training. It's pretty uh, common to be about the same time that you're potty training or if you have changes in schedules. Uh, so kids, when they're when they're learning how to control their own bowel movements, sometimes you can set up cycles where they do that inappropriately. Uh, they build up stool in their lower intestine. Uh, it hurts when it comes out, and it sets up this cycle of them uh, suppressing that urge, and it just uh, compounds the problem. Uh, but basically, the longer that stool stays in the intestine, uh, the harder it's going to get because of the body's natural processes of absorbing water from the from the stool. There are some warning signs. Uh, you know, normally we we you know talk about normal stooling, stooling patterns in kids. Now we do have a lot of patients that come in. Sometimes their their parents will say, "Well, you know, my baby they're having abnormal stools. They're only having one a day." There are some outliers. So uh, particularly young kids when they're first born, you're going to have a stool with most feedings. If they're breastfed, they tend to not have as many stools, but it, and it may have, uh, well, they may have more stools, but it may be less stool there, uh, and sort of watery. If they're formula fed, the stools are more, there's more volume to that stool and they may have a little bit less of them. But generally speaking by, you know, by the first month or so, they should have about two to three stools a day on average. There are some children that have stools maybe once a day, maybe every other day. Uh, you can have, again, some kids that go a little bit longer than that. Uh, but if they're having regular soft stools, that's usually okay. So normal stooling patterns will ask a lot about that. And, uh, you know, if they're having one stool a day and they're three weeks of age, uh, as long as it's soft, their abdomen's not, uh, distended, the child's growing appropriately, that may be a normal stooling pattern for them because everybody's a little bit different. Some warning signs, there's a, there's a special type of stool that comes out right after the baby is born, which is called meconium. And it's a nasty, thick, black, sort of tarry-looking stool uh, that comes out. If that is delayed, if they haven't passed that by at least the first 48 hours, or uh, you know that, that may be a warning sign that they may have some other problems with the way that their intestines uh, have, uh, have developed. Uh, and they may have, uh, you may need to investigate that further. If they have fever or vomiting or diarrhea with the constipation, that is a red flag that needs to be looked at a little bit 
uh, in more detail. Or, you know, it's common to have a little bit of bleeding, especially if they have a hard, large stool that the child will pass and have what's called an anal fissure. So this is a tear right around the anus uh, where stool comes out that uh, you can have a little bit of blood there. If they have, if they don't have that though, and they have blood in the stool, then that's that's a problem. Uh, again, bleeding, particularly in an infant, they can uh, that can be a, a big issue sometimes. And then if they have severe abdominal distension, if their abdomen is really really distended, that can be a, a big issue as well. All right, we got an email here. I'm going to read so. Uh, some of the formulas are very expensive. Certain brands are like Infamil tend to be a little bit more expensive than others. There are always off-brand uh, comparisons. Is it worth it to spring for the real thing, or am I losing any real value with the generic stuff? That's a good question from Eric. So, Eric, yeah, that's a great question that we have all the time. So there's if you look at all the different choices of formula, you can find all kinds of comparisons against one another and what works and what doesn't work. Uh, a general, uh, you know, run-of-the-mill formula that you can buy at Walmart is no different than one you can get that's a specialty formula unless your physician tells you otherwise. But... Uh, you know, if you look at what's needed, of course, breast milk, breastfeeding is the best way. It's often the cheapest way to do it if you can do it. Um, it does take a little bit of scheduling on mom's part, but it's the healthiest thing, the most natural thing to give nutrition to that child um, in the at least first six months of life. But if you can do it up to a year, that's great. Uh, and, you know, there are some options after that if you want to continue breastfeeding. Formulas, generally we would recommend an iron-fortified formula, but it doesn't really matter if it's a, you know, fancy one with lots of stuff that's added in. Generally speaking, there's not any evidence to support that. It's going to be a higher price formula, as you mentioned, uh, and it, uh, you know, in the, in the run-of-the-mill uh, infant uh, that's normal, not having any kind of problems, it's going to be fine. There are lots of other formulas out there that are used sometimes for special situations where the infant can't or the child can't break down those substances, so it's pre-digested formulas. These are the stinky formulas that they do come out as diarrhea, uh, and they're not easy to deal with sometimes by parents. So, Second email here uh, from Kim in Ocean Springs. Is there anything that I can do for my child's earaches? She has them constantly. Is this normal? Uh, um, I'm told that earaches just happen with some kids. This seems abnormal in frequency. So I don't know what age your child is, Kim, but uh, yeah, earaches can be a problem. It's a common complaint that we see of, of kids that come into the clinic. Um, the first thing that we do, of course, is look in the ear. I would not recommend go digging around in your child's ear, no matter what their age is. If they have things in there, like foreign objects, uh, you can end up doing some damage by pushing them further into the ear canal, make them harder to get out. Uh, you know, it's amazing to me, the things you can find in an ear. Uh, my favorite is these little, uh, charm bracelets where they have different little things that hang off of them. And we had this little girl, cute little girl that came to clinic, uh, and she had this, uh, I looked in, she was complaining of some ear pain, looked in her ear, and there was a miniature baby in her ear uh, that we traced back to one of these charm bracelets that he was just hanging out in her ear and causing pain. Uh, but uh, we got that thing out in the office, uh, you know, under some controlled conditions, and 
uh, she she did fine. So you could have a foreign object depending on the child's age. Even if they tell you, I didn't put anything in my ear, you st- it still pays off just to look at it. Ear infections. It turns out we don't really know a whole lot about ear infections, about the best way to treat them. Um, a lot of them are caused by just differences in how the inner ear drainage system is set up in your child. The reason younger kids have more ear infections most people believe is because that eustachian tube, which is the tube that connects the inner ear portion or the middle ear portion to the back of the throat, uh, gets clogged up for whatever reason. Uh, if you've ever flown in an airplane, you've experienced this. When your ears pop, that's that eustachian tube that's opening up. Different movements of the mouth or chewing gum uh, opens that tube up so that the pressure equalizes. If you have an abnormal pressure in that middle ear cavity, the bacteria that are there can can uh, overgrow because they're not draining out appropriately, or sometimes it can just cause pain uh, for for various reasons. Viral infections can do the same thing if they cause any kind of inflammation where that tube empties out in the back of the throat, or you may have a situation where a child has lots of uh, lymphoid tissue. This is like lymph nodes that you feel on the outside, underneath your skin, and your neck, or in your groin, or underneath your arms. Well, these are there are also collections of tissue that are the tonsils and the adenoids. Uh, the adenoids in particular can block those entrances of the drainage system, the eustachian tube, and uh, cause some ear problems. So sometimes surgery can correct that. Uh, generally speaking, less than a year of age, up to about 15, 18 months, if you have more than about five ear infections during that time or an ear infection that doesn't get better with antibiotics, uh, then that would be uh, a reason to go see an ear, nose, and throat specialist uh, so that you can get treated appropriately, usually with tubes, to help that drainage system drain. But truth be known, we don't know a whole lot about that. There have been some great studies looking at not treating with antibiotics because we use antibiotics way too much in this country for all kinds of different things. That's part of the reason why we have antibiotic resistance to some um, to some bacteria. Uh, there have been some great studies looking at not treating uncomplicated ear infections and kids do fine. They don't have decreased hearing later on. Uh, so best thing I would say is if your daughter's having a lot of pain and they're pulling on, on her ear, uh, then you may want to just, uh, you know, go see somebody to directly look at the ear just to see if there's something in there or another problem. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. We're talking about GI issues this morning and anything else that you want to call in about with the health of your child or family. You can give us a call this morning at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 Or you can email us at kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. We'll be right back after this break. While the conventions are over, candidates have been nominated. With less than three months to Election Day, we don't know what's going to happen between now and then. But whatever it is, we'll be here to help you understand it. Listen every day. Weekdays at 4 on MPB Think Radio. 
Catch up on past episodes and hear any of the MPB programs you've missed on the MPB Public Radio app. Available on iTunes and Google Play. Listen live to MPB Think Radio and MPB Music Radio. Search MPB Public Radio. This is Mississippi Public Broadcasting. There's a lot to be discovered about Mississippi. Like the little-known places you can visit on a Mississippi road trip. Or where to find a local brewery for a unique experience. Every Friday morning at 10, we take you on an hour-long journey through Mississippi. It's music, cuisine, culture, and history. And you never know where our next stop will be. I'm Mary Margaret Miller. And I'm Sharia Brent. Be sure to join us Friday mornings at 10 for Next Stop Mississippi on MPB Think Radio. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. You're listening to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Welcome back to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. I'm Dr. Jimmy, and we're talking about lots of GI issues and any other questions that you might have about the health of your children or your family. Please give us a call this morning, and we'll take your comments or calls at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 Or send us an email to kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. Another question we had here in the studio is, uh, so what about the color of stool, particularly if it has blood in it? So blood in stool can present two different ways. Uh, You can have bright red blood, uh, which is usually lower down in the GI tract. Uh, It can, any kind of, you know, irritation or anything to the lining of the intestines uh, just past the, the stomach uh, usually that'll present with uh, with bright red blood. You can have blood above that, particularly if it if it transmits fat, if it goes through the GI tract really fast. If you're having diarrhea that moves quickly through there, or you can have a tear, as we mentioned earlier, right at where the stool comes out around the anus, particularly in the setting of constipation. Usually that'll be streaked on the outside of the stool, whereas uh, if it's the higher up it is, it'll be mixed in with the stool. If blood is higher than that, let's say that you're having a problem with with irritation in the lining of the stomach or the esophagus or higher up or even swallow blood, usually that blood is going to present as a dark, tarry stool that we call melana. And uh, melana is just digested blood. So when blood sort of nasty, but uh, you know if you uh, if you have blood in the contents of the stomach for long enough that it gets digested by acid. Uh, it turns into this thick, tarry mess, uh, and uh, it's very recognizable. So, you know, if it's on the surface of the stool and it's in the setting of that they have a little bit of a tear right around the anus with older kids, usually they don't have hemorrhoids, but if they did have a hemorrhoid, uh, that would be another reason that you could see that either external or internal hemorrhoids. Uh, you know, speaking of, of that and exam, so we usually tend not to, you know, younger kids that uh, don't have uh, any complications from things like that. We usually don't examine, uh, don't do the rectal exam for obvious reasons. We don't want to traumatize the child. Uh, but if they have chronic diarrhea or constipation, uh, sometimes we'll, that, that's a useful thing to do to gain more, uh, to a little bit more evidence about what's going on. 
uh, in that particular child. So constipation, uh, you know, it's there. The ninety-five percent of constipation in kids um, can be what we call functional constipation, which usually means uh, it's in that cycle of they hold onto that stool longer, they suppress the urge to go to the bathroom, it stays in the intestine longer, they absorb more water, and you just get into this big cycle. And again peaks right around the time that you're potty training them. Uh, you really have to work on getting the, school, the stool <laughs> when did that again? The stool soft and uh, we do that sometimes with laxatives. We increase uh, fiber in the diet. We'll do it. Anything that's going to keep more water in that stool. There are some laxatives that work well. Uh, Miralax or polyethylene glycol. It's not the same stuff you put in your antifreeze uh, in your car, but it's a little bit different. Is a substance that uh, holds on to water uh, in the intestine and allows it to sort of soften up as it transits through. Uh, so that's a common uh, substance that we would use. The The Miralax one uh, is very safe. It's not absorbed by the body. It just keeps, uh, you know, that water in there. So that's something that you can use uh, if if your physician says that. Certainly in older children, it's very useful. One of the pitfalls with that is it's not used long enough. Uh, you do have to... Uh, you know, use it to the point where the child uh, gets comfortable with going to the bathroom and it's loose enough, a formed, just barely formed stool, so it's loose enough to not cause any problems, particularly if they have had a hard stool that, that uh, passed through and they've had a tear. Uh, that's that's something they're going to have to get over in younger kids. Uh, and a lot of times if they have an impaction, and that's just stool that's it's impacted uh, in the lower portion of the rectum, uh, you need to get that out. We, most of the time, we don't need to do the manual disimpactions. You can give something from above, a little bit higher dose of those laxatives to help clean that out. Let's go to Martha in Lando. Good morning, Martha. Are you there? Hold on just a second, and we'll get to you. All right, we're having a little bit of problem getting to her. Yes, Martha, are you there? I am. Thank you for calling. Is that Lando? Did I get that right? Hernando. Hernando. I was thinking, is that a Star Wars character? Hernando. <laughs> I'm familiar with Hernando. Don't know where Lando is. Thank you for calling this morning. What's your uh, question? My grandson, who is 18 months old, will cry uh, if he gets very upset about something, and he will actually stop breathing and literally pass out. Uh-huh. Or what seems like ever, I'm sure it's only a second or two. Yep. And my daughter is just frantic about it. So, did they have any other medical problems that y'all know about at this point? And no. Okay, and it's just those episodes occur just if they get upset about something. Right. Yeah. So, so this is uh, it's akin to breath holding episodes. So, some kids will do this as a and an 18 month old is a perfect age to see this. Uh, as an attention, they're trying to either get their way about something, they're upset about something, or they're trying to change somebody else's behavior. Uh, of course, the breath-holding spells, they'd hold their breath until they pass out, and then immediately they'll start breathing. You know, and by immediately, I usually I mean 20 seconds. Like you said, that can be a long time uh, if you're watching them, particularly if you're a parent or grandparent. Um, th- this is sort of, sounds sort of similar to that. Um, you can have an exaggerated, what's called a vasovagal reaction too. particularly if you're crying, it stimulates the nerves that control breathing to the point where you might, uh, pass out depending on how 
the child's crying too, they can hyperventilate, and that can do the same thing. Uh, at 18 months, most of the time, if they don't have any other symptoms after that, they wake up, they're feeling fine. Uh, that's not a problem. Uh, but, you know, if it uh, certainly, you know, getting checked out is never the wrong thing to, to suggest by a physician. But it sounds like this is akin to those types of episodes and is probably self-limiting. Uh, you're right, though. It's scary. Now, the thing to do is not to freak out or give the, the kid attention, which is very hard. Because um, an 18 month old, you know, if if you've if, if once they do that, they really want to get what they what they want. Um, so ignoring them will sometimes change the behavior better than anything else. But that sounds like what it is to me. You know, I I would get your your physician to really look at the child, make sure that the neurologic exam is fine, the cardiovascular exam is fine. But if that's okay, uh, you know, that's probably what that behavior is linked to. Is that something he will just grow out of then? Yes, yeah. And, it's, and again, it's, it's a response if, you know, that uh, they're trying to get what they want and uh, they, should, they should grow out of that um, as they get older. Okay. All right. Well, she lives in New Hampshire, so it's a little hard for me ah. to see it happening. <laughs> yeah. But she has um, – her first child had um, uh, some problems with a little bit of epilepsy when she was a little child right. under, under four. Yeah. And so, of course, anything that even looks remotely like that yeah. is going to make her upset. So. Yeah, there are some things – you know, people think about seizures and seizure-like activity – uh, you will have with with some seizures you'll have a, what's called a post ictal um, period, and that's after the seizure. Uh, they'll be uh, unresponsive. They may pass out for a while. They may be a little confused, uh, and that can you know it can be uh, it can present in a similar fashion. Uh, usually, though, it's it's you know that that's that is something that you can you can sort of differentiate, particularly if somebody sees it. Um, uh, the difference between those two. There's a, you know, there's a couple of different ways you would diagnose seizures. Uh, history is extremely important. Uh, they can do what's called an EEG, which is the electrical tracing of the of the brain. That's an outpatient procedure that they can do uh, to sort of differentiate that. But this sounds more like it's sort of that behavior of of mm-hmm. uh, those toddlers doing that and uh, to get get what they want. Okay, so she just needs to make them comfortable and. Just- that that's what I would do after you know a physician sees him. If he if he says hey he's got a normal neurologic exam everything else looks fine cardiovascular system heart looks fine then yeah that's probably what I would do. Okay, all right. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you for calling. Thanks. Let's go to a second Martha from Tupelo. Good morning, Martha. Hi. Thank you for calling. Uh, I was wondering if you could explain the difference between a nurse practitioner. And a physician assistant. Sure. Uh, so, so there's, you know, the, one of the things about healthcare these days is you have teams of people that provide that healthcare, and uh, particularly in a state like Mississippi, we don't have enough doctors to go around. That's why we're trying to increase at UMMC. We're trying to increase the number of physicians, particularly primary care physicians, but also subspecialists uh, at all ages. Uh, so in part of that, uh, because of part of that, we have other people that provide some of that care. And nurse practitioners and physician's assistants are, are two other people that are part of the team, if you want to think of it that way. That's sort of the way I think about it. Um, a nurse practitioner, first off, is somebody who is a nurse uh, who goes on for some other special training. 
And um, there are different areas of nurse practitioners uh, that, in, for instance, they may have some further training as a family, a certified family nurse practitioner or a certification in a particular subspecialty area. And that allows them to practice, uh, you know, sort of like a physician. So they're, they're able to see patients on their own on, under the supervision of a physician. So there's a physician that's usually that they're, um, they're either physically, you know, in the same office or is supervising their practice. Um, the, the way laws are set up in Mississippi, every state's a little bit different, but generally speaking, uh, you know, they can prescribe medications, uh, they can um, uh, diagnose and treat things within that scope of training that they received, similar to to a physician. And, you know, most all the time they're working hand-in-hand uh, hand with a physician in case there's, you know, there needs to be some some oversight of any particular thing that's going on or, or something that uh, is uh, maybe out of the scope of, of their practice. A physician's assistant is similar to that. It's a totally separate training program. Uh, that rotates through some clinical situations. And again, state to state, it's a little bit different. Uh, They are licensed to do certain things, uh, not quite as much as, say, a nurse practitioner would be able to do, uh, but they are able to to see and treat uh, patients under the supervision of a a physician. Uh, And and, uh, physician's assistants, uh, particularly in the state of Mississippi, they're in an office usually with another physician, uh, and uh, seeing patients, most physicians' assistants, uh, you know, they can be uh, family, sort of family medicine based, with uh, a broad scope of what they can do, uh, or they may work uh, with subspecialists uh, to do certain things. But that's part of the healthcare team, and you know, sometimes we forget. And I, I try to introduce, if I have a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant or a medical student or a medical resident with me when I'm seeing patients. I try to introduce them with their role and and encourage the person to do that. Sometimes we forget to do that, and it may be sort of confusing. Uh, I would just ask them about that if there's any kind of uh, you know confusion about that. But that's that's sort of the difference. Uh, you know, I, I I don't I do teach from time to time. I have nurse practitioner students with me and physicians assistants uh, assistant students. Uh, from time to time. So I'm a little bit familiar with that. I I don't know all the details about it, but that's the basics of the differences between the two. Is that sort of... That's great. I I thought they were similar, but I I knew there were some differences. Right. I just wanted a little bit more information. I sure do appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. And, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I appreciate... We have a nurse practitioner that works in our office... Uh, with patients, and it is a it, it's a great help in doing things. I think some, most patients that understand the role, and that's uh, that's exactly you know the reason why Martha asked the question is you need to understand the role of of what they're doing uh, as part of the healthcare team, and they can do a lot. They can help you out a lot because most places today, particularly in Mississippi, one person's not able to handle all the healthcare needs of the community or their patients. So I uh, you know I. Highly uh, uh, am a big proponent of of doing that. Pharmacists have had increased roles as well. I know in our residency clinic we have pharmacy residents with us that can help follow up with patients uh, if they have if they need to have asthma follow up uh, or uh, uh, for instance or you know diabetic follow up on different things. It's a great resource to have in your clinic. Uh, in addition to sort of the traditional nurse calling you back. Uh, so we have lots of different roles in healthcare, and they can be confusing. Uh, 
to to patients and sometimes to physicians too to know exactly what everybody's doing. All right, we're talking about uh, constipation. A couple more things. You got a, about a minute left, uh, so that we're going to talk about that. A couple of things more on constipation. The big thing we we mentioned some of the things that you can give. Uh, if you have a young infant, make sure that you're asking your physician about that. Now, a lot of people will advocate sometimes extended family members, uh, grandparents may say, "Well, give that baby a little bit of water. They need that." The truth of the matter is, they don't need that. It can be dangerous. Um, if you're adding that to their formula or to breast milk, uh, and usually it doesn't change the, the stool at all. Giving them juice, particularly less than six months of age, also can be a dangerous thing. So check with your physician if you got a younger one with constipation. All right, unfortunately, that is all the time we have for this morning. Hey, thanks for calling and sending emails. Enjoy the discussion with you this morning as we talk about poop and vomit. Southern Remedy Kids and Teens is a production of Mississippi Public Radio, Think Radio, and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and generous support from the members of the Foundation for Public Broadcasting in Mississippi. Today's show was engineered by Jay White. Our call screener was Liz Gill. I'm Dr. Jimmy, and you can join us next Thursday at 11 o'clock for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens, and stay tuned for NPR's Here and Now coming up next on MPB Think Radio. Underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Live healthy on the go with the My Blue Mobile app. More at bcbsms.com. With the addition of the daytime heating, we have.